you put in motion from before the foundation of the world was fulfilled at a cross where the forgiveness of sin who would all who to all who would look upon it and claim what it means that the judge stepped down from his table from his throne and not only lived among us but paid the price so that we could be back in relationship with you. Father God, that is what love looks like. Lord, I want, I, I want to pray with my brothers and sisters that you would remind us that we need not ever wonder if you are for us. The cross proves it. It wasn't an accident. It was intentional. Why? That you might display the glory of your grace to vessels unworthy. That's what makes it so beautiful. Thank you for the reminder of your beauty that we get as God's people gather together. As we continue to worship you in your word right now, remind us that the king is coming to complete what he started. And may we live looking up in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Am I good? Yes? What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not even spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, he will also give up everything else. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for us his own? No one for God himself has given us the right standing with himself. For who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus has died for us and raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does that mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say that, for you, your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No one, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither, nor, neither our fears for today or nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Christian. So early in the um, conflict of our, of our nation's civil war, a concerned citizen came to President Lincoln and said um, that they were concerned that God was for us, like whether we were on God's side or not. And Lincoln said to this person, that never concerns me. I am never anxious about whether, I, whether God is on our side or not. What I am anxious of is whether I'm on his. I think about that in my own life. We struggle, all of us struggle with wondering whether we're on God's side or not. Even as believers, especially as believers, and yet, 
we also take it to the, to the frankly s- sinful place, and I do too, of questioning whether God is for us. We need never doubt that our God is for us. Our first talking points question that's on the back of your bulletin insert says, why can it be so hard to believe that God is for us? I'm asking, why can that be so hard? Sin. What do you mean by sin? Okay, so how, right, how could God love a, a wretched man like me, sort of sense? Good. And I heard, Teresa, you were sort of saying, we're not worthy. What else? Calamity in our lives. I mean, bad things happen. Right? Bad things happen to people that we look at and go, man, they, they didn't deserve that. He's so big and we're so small. Like, why, why would he even care? Right? It's, it's the Psalm 8 that, that Kylie read. Who is man, O oh God, that you would even look upon him? So good, sister. I don't know if you heard it. So Kim said that the fact that we struggle to forgive people, so how could God possibly forgive us? Guys, all of those things have, have kind of one thing in common. We have inserted ourselves into the salvation equation too much. Because we struggle to forgive, how could God forgive? Because we know we're sinners and unworthy, why would God still be for us? Guys, what we have is a grace problem. And what I mean by a grace problem isn't that God is stingy about his grace. It's that we don't grab a hold of it. We don't really, I mean, we know we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We, we can recite that. We've taught on that. We, but do we really live like that? In those moments where, we're, where, where, we, where, we know, where this Holy Spirit has convicted of us, us of our sin, do we take it to this level of, oh no, I am so unworthy. What if God doesn't love me anymore? That's a grace problem, because I'm going to let us all in on a little secret, and I'm preaching to myself this morning, people. We aren't worthy. That's what makes grace, grace. Right? What is the definition of grace? It is the unmerited favor of God. That means it is something he gives us when we do nothing for it. That's what makes grace, grace. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So open up your Bibles to Romans, and we're going to look at this idea of the mystery of our assurance. And what I mean, we're in this section on the mystery of the righteousness revealed. We're in this section of Romans 8, and we're back in Romans again today. And and what I mean by the mystery of our assurance is, why do we struggle so hard to really believe our salvation is assured in Christ? Why is that so incredibly hard for us? And, and I think it's because we just have a weak view of the gospel. Guys, if, if, and it's been a few weeks since I taught on um, Romans 8, 28 through 31, but if Romans 8, 29 and 30, for who he foreknew, he predestined, he predestined, he called, he called, he justified, he justified, he glorified, the golden chain of redemption, we'll talk about it some more today. Guys, if those are the two most important, and I'm using air quotes for those of you that can't see me right now, Um, whether it's online or on the podcast, Um, I'm using air quotes. If those are the two most important verses of the Bible, and I'm saying that because all of the Bible is important, but if those two verses are the most important in the most important chapter of the Bible, chapter 8, in the most important book of the Bible, Romans, and a lot of scholars believe that, 
then the passage we're going to look at today, Romans 8, 31 through 39, is probably the most soul-nourishing and life-giving passages in all of Scripture. Guys, if there is a piece of Scripture you ought to commit to memory, like a chunk, not just a verse, it ought to be Romans 8, 31 through 39. Guys, we, in a world that is increasingly unsure, in a church... Not, not this church, but the church that is increasingly unsure. We have to renew our mind and renew our mind and renew our mind with the assurance of our salvation. And, and Romans 8 is a great, it, it began with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's going to end with, there is no separation. We're going to see that today. And in the middle, it's going to talk about how there is no defeat. Like, that's what we've been looking at in Romans 8. That's what, I think this is now our, our seventh or eighth week in this one chapter because it's just that important. So today, as we look at the mystery of our assurance, the question we're asking is, what are we assured of in Christ? Like, what does our Christianity, our faith in Christ, really assure us of? And the three things he's going to show us is that God withholds nothing from us, that he charges nothing against us, and that nothing can ever come between us. So let's look at Romans 8. And we're going to look at our first point. And we're going to begin in Romans 8.31. But, but because it's been a while since we've been in Romans 8. And, and I want to kind of bring us back to this place of where Paul has taken us in Romans. Guys, if this were, and I'm not a musical person. I'm blessed to have musical, a musical family. But they didn't get it from me. Um, if, this, if, if Paul were playing an organ, if the, if, if, Romans, if the book of Romans was like organ music, Romans 8, 31 through 39 is like the crescendo. Like he is, because he's about to shift gears in Romans 9, but he is, like, he is bringing this like, duh, what's that called? When, like you just bring it all, it's the, in, in music, for, for tis, for, fortissimo, it's like play it loud. Duh! That's what Paul, like, so, so when we're reading Romans 8, 31, 30, like, man, imagine Paul is at, the, at a giant organ, and he's just, like, hitting, he is hitting all the keys. Like, he's laying down on them. He's got his foot up here because he is trying to get, like, as much of everything he's talked about since Romans, really since Romans 1, but certainly since Romans 5, he is bringing to bear in this place. Our problem is we've spent, we spent so much time in this book, like we've, we've forgotten the thoughts. So before we, so, so keep your finger in Romans 8. Turn a couple pages back to Romans 5. We won't go all the way back to Romans 1, but I, I want to set the table with Romans 5 because it's so important that we understand Paul is pulling this beautiful truth forward. In Romans 5, so he's, he's talked about the, the need for the gospel. And then he gets to Romans 5 and he says, Therefore, I'm in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained an inheritance, or we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And now get these last few verses that I'm going to read here. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's grace. 
that is, the, that is a beautiful definition of grace. At the right time, when we were still dead in our trespasses, Christ died. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might die. But God showed his love for us that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and Paul's going to pull this whole thing forward and we're at Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. In Romans 7, he's having this personal wrestle with why do I keep sinning even though I'm a Christian? And, 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 he's, and then he gets to Romans 8 and he's like, okay, no condemnation, no condemnation. And now he's going to finish this whole idea before he moves on to some specifics about God's plan. And he's going to say, guys, everybody, I, me, you, all of us Christians throughout Christendom, throughout until the Lord comes back, we need to remember this. So what's the this? The first thing is that he um, withholds nothing from us. So look at the first couple verses of our passage. It says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I love how Paul is inviting us into the conversation by using plural pronouns. He's saying, he's saying What shall we say if God is for us, not them, not, I mean, it's not, even just a, it's not even just a plural pronoun, it's a plural possessive. He's saying, we all own this. Now look at what he says in verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. Will he not also graciously give us all things? It's Paul's way of saying, guys, what else does God have to do to prove his love for us than to, than to give his most prized possession his son to die for us like what else does it take for him to show i i love you people i love you people so much i came here as a man in the flesh and died like 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 legitimately what else would god need to do and yet i say that guys and i'm preaching to me because i over and over and over i doubt that god loves me i i'm wondering why he isn't doing x y or z for me like as in somehow if the somehow the cross just wasn't enough and what that does is that causes you and i to live outside of the power of the grace of god Guys, it would be like if somebody, it would be like Mark, if somebody said, if, if somebody called you up today and said, you just want a brand new Rolls Royce or Bentley or whatever your thing is, right? And, they, and, and you come down there and you show up and there it is and it's all shiny and polished and they're like, it's all yours and we've even paid the taxes on it. In fact, we've even paid the, the licensing fee from now on because that's probably more than you make in a year. And, and so, and yet here's the problem. They don't hand you the keys. So he just sort of stands, so he still has the car and maybe he shines it a lot. But he doesn't really get the joy of driving it. Or what if like the richest man in the world, whoever that is right now, right, came up and handed you a credit card, Emma, and said, Emma, you can spend whatever you want of this. I'm never going to ask you about it. But she lives like a pauper. Like she lives under a bridge somewhere because she's afraid to spend it. It'd be, like, it'd be like a child. So, so think about like, so young people in the room. You come downstairs or you come into your, wherever your Christmas tree is and there's all these Christmas presents under the tree, right? But you never actually open them. They're still there. They, they're even yours. Your parents are like, they're yours. But you have to believe they're yours and you have to go over there and actually take possession of them. Guys, we as Christians live this like halfway there. We believe we have the Bentley. We, we might even believe we have the credit card. We believe the presents are there, but we don't live enjoying them. 
because we don't really step into the fullness that is the grace of God. And what Paul's telling us here is, he's like, guys, if, if, if God sent Jesus to die for you, is he really at some point later going to go, now I'm going to get stingy? He just gave you everything, right? So why do we see God that way? So that leads us to our second talking points question. What is it you're not trusting Jesus for? You're not driving the Bentley. You're not opening the presents. You're not spending the credit. What is it you're not trusting Jesus for? Now, I'm not going to ask you for input on that, but I am going to ask you for input on the second part of that. How do we even know these things might be, what these things are? How, do, how would we know, so without telling me what those things are that you're struggling in trust issues with with God, how do you even know, like, what is your barometer for knowing? What kinds of things? You're what? Your infatuation with them, the amount of like emotional and mental energy you spend on them. Good. What else? Your reaction when you don't have them. Right? We talked about that. Like if you want to know what an idol in your life or someone else's life is, is or one of your children's lives, take something away from them. If they are out of control, that's an idol. And that's true for us adults too. What else? Things that cause you to be stressed out, angry fearful, anxious. Guys, now I, again, I'm preaching to myself. I, woke, I, I went to bed last night about 11 and woke up 3.30 in the morning wide awake going, I do not have time for this, Lord. And I'm like praying and I'm, you know, re- rehearsing the Psalm 23 and, I'm, and then I just about, and then all of a sudden another anxious thought would pop into my brain and I'm wide awake. I mean, I can feel the adrenaline like flood through my body. I'm like, oh, here's another 20 minutes. Okay, Lord, I'm, and, and, and I, I mean, we all struggle with that. But every one of those things that were coming into my mind, and many of, most of them were just ridiculous, are things that I am not trusting God for. And he's probably waking me up at 3.30 in the morning to prove it to me. Right? And, I, and I know many of you from talking to so, at least many of the guys in this room that you struggle with the same kinds of things. And so we just need to be really aware of that. I want to say it one more time. Guys, how much more would Christ have to do than die on a cross to prove to you and to I that he holds nothing back? He gave every, like literally everything. And all of it is already ours. Now, because we are those people stuck between kingdoms, here we go again. We're stuck between the already completed, like it's all, all of ours, all of his riches. We are, heir, we are heirs, Paul told us that in Romans. We are heirs to, 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 um, to Christ Jesus. That means everything that is his is ours. But we don't have complete access yet. My point is, even down here in the not yet completed, we have more access to it than we think we do. And we ought to start living like it. right? We ought to start living more victoriously than we do. So today's question is, what are you assured of in Christ? The first thing is that he holds nothing back. The second is that no charge st- will stand against us. I love how I, Brian and I didn't talk, and, and, when, and, and I'm assuming it was Elijah who gave you the story, because you said a he, and you only got one of those. So I'm assuming it was Elijah who gave you that awesome, I mean, it's such a great story about the, about the judge. If you weren't here for prayer time, you ought to show up. Um, and, because um, you missed a great story, but th- like, this is what, that is exactly what Paul's going to point to right now. And some of you even prayed that way during our prayer time. So look at verses um, 33 and 34. It says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
Is it, it is God who justifies. Now guys, do you, do you see right there in that one verse, but who will bring a charge against God's elect, why the theology of Romans 29 and 30 is so important? Because if we're going to cling to this promise in verse 33, and eventually where he's going to lead us to in verse 34, we have to believe in the promises of verse 29 and 30. For who God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. That's the elect. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So if we're, gonna, if we're sitting here as justified saints, wondering about whether we're going to be glorified or not, it's because we're doubting that golden chain of redemption in verses 29 and 30. We have got to hold the mystery, and it is a mystery. How all that plays out, I preached on it, I don't know. Paul will tell us in chapter 11, he doesn't even get it all, how it plays out. But the reality is, the fact that God is the one who initiated it, and God is the one who finishes it, is, is a biblical truth, and that's what he's, that, that theological truth is what he's clinging to when he gets to the beautiful freedom of the gospel. No, because look at verse 34. Verse 34 is the gospel. So he's saying, so first of all, he's saying, who's going to bring a charge against God's children? God is, God is the judge. You're, we're going to sing a song at the end today. Um, it's called Jailbreak, or the subtitle of it is Jailbreak. And the opening line, the opening lyric of it is something like, um, question, go, go on and speak against my borrowed innocence. The judge himself is my defense. So, he said, so, what, the, so what the songwriter is saying is Romans 8, 33 and 34. He's saying, who, who's going to come and tell me what I... Like you, you can talk bad about me if you want. You can tell me I don't deserve God's love. God, the one who judges that, is the judge who paid the price for it. That's what, that's the, that is what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. Religion... Most of them, almost all the major world religions, have some form of judgment. Christianity says, yeah, I do judge, and yeah, I pay the price. I, like, like Brian's story said, I get down off my bench, and I go next to the person who has to pay, and I pay the fine because I am their father. That's what makes grace, grace. That's what makes Christianity, Christianity. So look at verse 34. It is the gospel. He says, who is to condemn? Like, who can possibly condemn us? Why? Why? Because we're so good? No. Why? Because, because somehow we've, we've, the gospel got our act cleaned up? Like, we're now, we're now behaving perfectly? He's like, no, there's all kinds of reasons to condemn us from a worldly perspective. But he's like, who can bring it? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. It has everything to do with who Christ is. It has nothing to do with who you are. Christ is God, and God died on a cross for you. That's Paul's like, hey, so bring your argument. Bring your argument against me, Satan. Bring your argument against me, world. Bring it, because Christ dealt with it. And then he goes, and then I love how he's like, and he's getting himself ramped up. Like I said, he's hitting the keys. It's getting louder and louder. He's like, he's the one who died, and more than that, he was raised. And guess what? That more than that attaches to each one of these next parts. And more than that, he's the one who's seated at the right hand of God. And more than that, he makes intercession on your behalf. Do you know you have three intercessors? 
You have God the Father, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because of John 3, 17. Because God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. That's the Father, the Son. Hebrews 7, 25 says that he sits at the right hand of God where he makes intercession on our behalf constantly. And oh, by the way, if that's not enough, look at Romans 8, um, 27. He and he who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul's like down here in verse 34, he's like, who bring it? I know I'm a mess. I, I know I'm, it's okay. Say what you want against me. It doesn't matter. There's a quote by a um, Greek scholar named Kent Hughes. He says this. I, I loved this. He says, if accusations are brought against us, we need not fear. For the charges are silenced by the upraised, pierced hands of our intercessor. If we are to be condemned, it will have to be over Christ's dead and now resurrected body, which actually is the basis of our salvation. How is that for confidence? Remember, we're talking about how can we be assured. How can we be assured? Because Christ's pierced, raised hand makes intercession. Anytime someone makes a charge against you, anytime the enemy and, and his fallen angels make a charge against you, Jesus takes it out of their hands and he's like, I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I paid, what else you got? What else you got? I am limitless. My bank account never ends. I will never dry up in grace. You just keep bringing them. Right? That's who our Jesus is. And that's the point Paul's trying to make here. He's like, guys, we have to understand that, that ultimately, this is, this is part of what made Paul so hard to deal with, I think, even intellectually. Look at your last talking points question. says, how does a strong doctrine of God's salvation help you live stronger, uh, live in stronger faith in Christ? The flip side of that would be, how might a weak doctrine leading to weak faith lead to those who have come to denounce their faith? Now rather than, I'm not going to ask for input on this one, but, I, but I, here's what came to mind as I was writing that question. Guys, there, there has been a movement in the church over the really start, started in like the um, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to keep, like, to keep church doctrine light. Theology, you know, doc, doctrine divides. And I get it. I mean, when I preached Romans 8, 28 through 31, there was some tension in the room. When I get to Romans 9, there will be some tension in the room. We just live with grace. We understand that there are things that we don't understand. And we, but, we, but we don't avoid the tension because we're trying to water down things and not and not make um things comfort like um controversial right that that's what the unfortunately that's what the church did 70s 80s 90s bible light doctrine light what have we been lamenting in our nation as a church for the last 20 or 30 years how many of our kids have wandered away. They were in. They were in. This is what they, they were in church their whole life. They were in Sunday school. They were in their youth groups. They were in all. And when they got out to college, or they went, guys, college didn't do it to them. 
There are, if, if they're grounded in their faith, there isn't a college in this world that can take that from them. Right? We gotta stop we gotta stop blaming the world and we gotta start looking in the mirror. Because the studies are showing, Barna is, is doing studies with these youth who are saying, what is it that caused you to walk away from your faith? And you know what it is? It's because they had no idea what they believed in and why. Because they were going to churches that didn't talk about doctrine. So the minute somebody who seemed like they were intellectual, like a professor or somebody they saw on YouTube now or whatever it is, seemed like they knew what was going on, they're like, well, all I ever hear from my church is you just got to have faith, Jesus, Jesus loves you, you just got to have faith, Jesus loves you. Like there's no real basis for my hard questions that I want to ask, like how do I know? Well, you know, you just got to trust. And you know what, what happened? When people start challenging them, they go, yeah, I really have no idea why I believe what I believe. And so I really don't believe it. And that's why we as a church are committed to preaching sound doctrine. It's why we're doing the training center on Tuesdays. It's, it's guys, because doctrine does matter. The, doc, the, the beautiful, powerful, soul-nourishing, life-giving truth that Paul is telling us right here has to be directly connected to Romans 8, 28 through 30, right? That's, that is why it matters. Unless God is in control and he is the one who has the plan and he makes his plan clear in the word, then we are left unmoored in a stormy sea of the world, free to think whatever we want. How's that working for us? That's why the church has moved to progressivism. Because they unhitched themselves from doctrine. So, so what, what are they using? Right? It's, it's why the church has embraced same-sex marriage. It's why the church has embraced homosexual and transgender pastors. What? Because, they unhi- because years ago, this isn't just a recent LBGTQ last couple years thing. Years ago, those churches unhitched themselves from the truth. And so now they're just going where the wind blows them instead of going where the Holy Spirit's wind spoke to us to take us. So that brings us to our last point. And it's the most important point of the passage. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because if I had, if I had to summarize these um, verses 35 through 39 in a word, that word would be love. Why? Because he uses it three times Right, look, look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now look at verse 37. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors for, through him who loved us. And then, he moved, then at the very end of, um, of verse 39, and nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ through Jesus Christ, our love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So love is the motivation that makes all of this happen. So let's take a look at Verse 35, yeah, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day as we are regarded as sheep without slaughter. Verse 36 is simply, it's Paul's way of saying, because he's quoting Psalm 44. It's Paul's way of saying, guys, because he's preaching to a church that is being persecuted by the government. 
He is preaching to a church that is being persecuted by the government. And what he's saying is, guys, it has always been this way. That's what verse 36 is saying. We have always been sheep led to slaughter. God's people, it isn't, we, we wring our hands and go, God must not be for us anymore because we're under persecution. And Paul's saying, no, God's people have always been under persecution and he's for them. So that's why he starts with, so what, what are we going to say? That just because we're going through hard times, somehow God isn't for us? Now look at verse 37. He says, Now in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Guys, one of the church fathers, um, John Chrysostom, he was the Archbishop of, of um, Constantinople in like 400 BC. Constantinople is where, what is now modern day Istanbul. It was one of the centers of the church at the time. Um, he was, did a lot for the church, the early church. It's 400 B, or AD. Did I say BC? It was 400 AD. So about, about, 300, about 300 years after the church, the, the last apostle died, he's one of the people that's being used to preach the gospel. The emperor at the time and his wife were anti-Christian. And they call him in multiple times and say, you need to stop preaching Christ. And ultimately, um, the wife questions him and says, well, here's what I'm going to do to you, um, Christostrom, if you, if you don't stop it. He says, um, he's, I'm going to banish you from our, from our land. And his answer was, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house, said John. But then she says, but I will kill you. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I'll take away your treasures. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. But I will drive away all your friends, and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom I cannot, se cannot be separated from. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Because this is what made Paul so impossible for the Romans to deal with. Because he's like, they're like, stop. He's going, what are you going to do? I'm going to throw you in jail. Okay, I'll convert the jailer. He's like, right, well, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to sing psalms and praises to him. Right? Okay, well, then I'm going to kill you. Fine. For me to, be, um, for me to die is gain. Like, like literally, he, like, he was holding on to nothing. Even as he was preaching Christ as everything. I want to go back and look at those facts at the dichotomy that Paul points out in these last few verses, and then we're going to start to land this plane. Look at verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life. So that's his way of saying whether I'm living here, like for me to live as Christ and die as gain, that's death or life, it's this dichotomy, nor angels or rulers. That's his way of saying, it's what I talked about when I taught two weeks ago about spiritual things. It's his way of saying the spiritual world, the rulers are the earthly world, like kings, emperors. He's saying, so nothing in the spiritual or the physical. Then he says, nothing present, nor things to come, nothing now or in the future. And then he says, nor powers. And the powers is the word dynamos. And basically what he, so basically what he's saying in verse 38 is, there is nothing in all of creation, like anywhere, that has the power to undo what Christ has done for you. Nothing. Not a government authority, not Satan and his demons, nothing. And as if to double down on that, he's, in verse, he's like, oh no, by the way, not height, 
so the heavens, not the depths, which for them would be hell or Sheol, nor any, and as if to like, as if to put an exclamation point on it, he's like, in case I'm not clear enough, this is, remember, he's hitting all the keys on the organ at this point. In case I'm not clear enough, he's like, nor anything in all of creation ever. So this is his way of saying, nothing anywhere ever at any time can do anything to you that matters for in any way that matters. He's like, in anything that really matters, nothing ever created can touch you. Now, guys, I get that a lot of us feel touched in bad ways. My problem in those moments isn't that God has stopped loving me. It's that I've gotten my eyes off the right thing. I've gotten my eyes set on my circumstances instead of on my Savior. I'm looking at the waves of this world instead of looking at the great I am who says, stop fearing, the great I am is here. And even if this ship goes down, guess where you go? Home. And it's so much better. And then that's where he finishes with the fortissimo of, the, of all the keys at once. And he says, nothing ever anywhere will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Guys, I want you to say that with me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's say it again. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now let's say it this time like we mean it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. Guys, what does he assure us of? That's the question we're asking today. He assures us of everything. There is nothing Christ doesn't assure you of. That's what the cross did. That's what his sacrifice means. That's what the gospel is. It's everything. He doesn't hold it back. He doesn't listen to the lies of the enemy or even to the things that you beat yourself up for. Guys, hear this. God distinctly remembers forgetting the things you and I beat each other up, beat ourselves up over every day. God distinctly remembers forgetting. I, I, I've chosen to forget this one when, when Doug came to faith, all of those ones, when Doug came to faith in Christ. He remembers that moment and he remembers nothing else. I beat myself up all the time. And it causes me to live. Guys, because the, here's the flip side of assurance. The flip side of assurance is fear and defeat and anxiety and worry. And I know we have people in our body right now that are deep in those things. And I know I've had times in my life, and, I, and I'm sure I will again. Guys, let's, Paul did. Let's remember Romans 7. This was not theory to Paul. Because no matter what you're going through, no matter how many attacks you've been in under the enemy, no matter how physically beat up you've been, no matter what ailments you're going through, no matter how much you've been hurt by other people, I promise you it pales in comparison to what our brother the Apostle Paul went through. It just does. This is not theory to him. So how does he do it? By remembering this truth. Nothing anywhere ever at any time is going to be able to separate him from Christ. 
And in the end, Christ is just better. I hate that I turn to things in my time of stress instead of just turning to him. It's because in that moment, I don't see him as better. I hate that we, I, we struggle with the assurance of our salvation because we don't really live in the grace of God. Nothing, anywhere, ever, at any time can undo what he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for the glorious truth that, um, that it isn't up to us. that the beautiful doctrine of your finished work on the cross from beginning to end, that you are the author and the finisher of our faith, the writer of Hebrews says. That's where our freedom is found. And because, and because that is true, we don't need to wonder whether you're for us. Lord, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I confess, we confess together, that we have somehow mixed blessings from God and your favor upon us and your foreness for us with life's circumstances. That when things are going well, somehow you're for us, and when they're not, you're against us. And that's just sinful pride and arrogance on our part. It's because I have inserted myself into the salvation equation. It's because we have somehow bought into this prosperity gospel that, that rages throughout our nation. That somehow the American dream and the gospel of Jesus Christ are the same thing, and they're not. They're just not. That what you have promised to us and what you have shown us through the historical fact of your death, burial, and resurrection is that nothing can touch us if we'll just claim the promise of Christ. If we'll just, as he told us, if, as, as he is raised up, those who look to him and repent and believe, they will be saved. And once that happens, nothing can unhappen that. Nothing can undo it. We don't need to worry. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be in despair. We don't need to be discouraged. And yet I, I also thank you that you're a savior that gets all of those things. That we don't need to beat ourselves up about being those things because you've dealt with those things too. That the reason you tell us do not worry. Don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough worries of its own is because you understood. You get us. So, Lord, I'm just praying for myself and for my brothers and sisters, old, young, and everything in between, Lord, that in those moments that, that our not-yet-renewed self is living in less than assurance that we would quickly get to Christ. 
that we would quickly look up. That we would quickly see you on a cross saying, it is finished. What else do, you, do I need to do to prove it to you? That we would remember as your people that, that you know it all. You, you know us fully and, and you love us completely. That because of the truth that you are for us, we are fully, freely, and forever forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. I've carried